Hi, everyone. <laughs> well, um, it's good to be here. It's good to be um, preaching to you again. Um, thank you for having me. Um, a lot has already been said and prayed and spoken this morning. Um, and whilst I believe in preaching, and I am um, currently actually reading John Stott's book of the same title to help my occasional unbelief, um, I do want to say that the most significant thing you may have needed to hear this morning may have already been said um, in the prayers, in the words that were shared during the worship time, in the worship songs themselves. Um, so here's my two cents. Um, we're in a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and I'm going to be focusing on Nehemiah chapter 9 today. So if you will turn there with me, um, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Last week, um, Marion, whom you just uh, saw in the video, um, spoke to us about chapter 8. Um, and you will know or remember there are a few festivals in that book um, taking place in that chapter for which the people of Israel gather together. They have the law read to them and explained to them. They seek to repent of their sins and they are encouraged to rejoice. Now, in chapter 9, we will be joining them with another gathering. And we will look at some introductory verses first. Um, then there is an extensive speech that we're going to uh, go through in full um, and bring up some of the things in there. And finally, I'll uh, close out the preach with a personal note. So let's start reading um, Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 4. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Katmiel, Shebaniah, Boni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. I'll stop there for now and continue in a moment. Let's take a moment to set the scene. The people of Israel were assembled on the 24th day of this month. Brings up the question, which month? Well, if you have a different translation with you, maybe you've seen it already there, um, it will say the same month, meaning the same month as the festival we read about last week in chapter 8, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that puzzles some modern commentaries. During that earlier feast, the Israelites built booths for themselves. They lived in those for a couple of days, they read from the law a lot, and it was, as Marion explained to us, an occasion of great joy. And now, in the same month, possibly after only a very brief interval, they gather again. But the atmosphere is entirely different. They come with fasting, they come in sackcloth, they have ashes on their heads. That's a sign of mourning, grief, the frailty of life. 
So some commentators are puzzled as to why those two things happen so shortly after one another. In fact, some of them say, maybe this story is actually better read as part of Ezra's story. You may remember from, I think Aaron preached on that for us a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a moment there where the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners with whom they had intermarried. So there's some theories about that, but then again it can't be fully agreed on where in Ezra the story should be placed. So, for now, let's look at the story as it is, in the book of Nehemiah. And if indeed the people gathered again so soon after the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles, that definitely says something about, well, their eagerness to get together and see God. And perhaps there was something weighing heavily on them that they wanted to bring before him. Now, let's go into the main part of chapter 9 and of the gathering itself. We've just mentioned the names of um, a group of Levites. Um, we're going to pick it up from there. And just up front, we're heading into an extensive speech. So bear with me um, and take note of what you think and feel as we read this. Let's read Nehemiah 9, starting at verse 5. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Katmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gegashite. And you kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. 
but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Och, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, 
and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So that's quite a bit of scripture. Thank you, Kat, for clicking along. Um, and on a mundane day, reading chapters like that, after a while I may get a bit bored of all the history. Why bring all of that up again? I felt the same sometimes with the speech of uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's being tried for his uh, faith in Jesus Christ and he gives a defense and he goes back all the way to Abraham to start out with. But that's like hundreds of pages back in this book and in their own scriptures, hundreds of inches of scroll, and literally thousands of years. But with this speech in Nehemiah 9, as I was reading it, I actually got a bit excited about it. Because with all the historical information it has, it still possesses a very clear thrust, if you will. A clear point that it's heading for. So let's take a closer look. What is this speech intended to be? You might indeed think it's a history lesson after a while, or a lecture, or a sermon. In fact, it is a prayer. Remember how it started out with, the Levites called the Israelites to stand up and praise the Lord their God. They addressed the Lord, calling him at the start of the speech, and it ended with a petition and a request, a lament even, perhaps. And still this prayer is packed with references to specific events in Israelite history and earlier parts of the Old Testament. Take Abram, for example. The prayer recounts the story of how God led him out from his homeland and gave him a new name. Mm, that's explicit in verses 7 and 8. But later on, while it is talking about the Israelites entering the promised land, it says in verse 23, and let me just quickly take that. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. This is talking about the Israelites entering the promised land. But the wording draws us back to the story of Abraham. Back to a time when there was no thing like a people of Israel yet. And no promised land they could call their own. It comes from Genesis 15. Where God tells Abraham to look up to the sky and see the stars. Maybe you know the story. Abraham is actually a bit worried whether the promise of a child will be fulfilled. And God says, look at the stars. Your offspring will be innumerable like them. And he also says, I'm giving you this land to possess. That 
first bit of Genesis 15 was one of our assigned texts in Hebrew this year. Um, I practiced a lot on translating those verses, and two people who studied, who studied Hebrew with me were there as well and, and are here today. Um, and I love how this speech in Nehemiah brings our attention to those parts of history and of Scripture. It doesn't bring just our attention to it, but also for the Israelites present there. Here's another one. Um, verses 26 and 27, it starts talking about the Israelites being in the promised land, becoming rebellious. And what happens is, prophets come, the Israelites don't listen, and they get punished. Surrounding nations overpower them and exploit them. They then cry out to God, and God sends them saviors. Now, I'm aware that many of us may think we have only one Savior and his name is Jesus Christ. That's very true. But this is way before the time of Jesus. So think for a second. Who would this be about? People of Israel are oppressed. God comes upon a certain individual, man or woman, who rises up, takes charge and leads the people into freedom again. That's talking about the judges. Judges like... Gideon, Simpson, Jephthah, Deborah. And there's more we could go through. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. You could check back in the book of Kings and read about those prophets. Um, it says God made a name for himself. That could refer to Moses, who asked for God's name, um, during whose time God did great works and made a name for himself, overpowering and crushing, really, the power of the Egyptian gods and sages. Or even look at the Psalms, a few of which bring up the glories of God in this exact way, bringing up history and bringing it back to God. I think it's clear that the people praying this prayer knew their history very well. But again, they didn't put all of that in here just to educate one another. I think we can see why, though, the Levites who led the people or the author who recorded this prayer constructed it in this way. Because through hearing it as an audience, and that's why I read it in full, you begin to see patterns. You begin to see recurring themes and things start standing out. And a few things become very clear here. One, God is a promise keeper. He made promises to Abraham, to the fathers, to the Israelites, and he kept them. He did give Abraham offspring. He did protect and prosper the forefathers. He did bring them into the promised land. And the Israelites, well... They have their side of the covenant. And they wholeheartedly sign up for that. <coughs> but only a few sentences in, we find that the Israelites are promise breakers. They acted presumptuously, did not obey God's commandments. Even now, and I've read it beforehand a number of times, I was struck by how many times I 
God to say again, they did not obey your commandments. It's a recurring thing in Israel's history. They stiffened their necks, which means they became arrogant and disregarded God. From the Hebrew, it might even be argued that they disregarded God with the same disdain and disrespect that the Egyptians had for them when they were slaves. Now they didn't start that way, and they aren't a particularly weak or weak-willed or weak-minded people. You can read how they affirm and reaffirm their allegiance to God, and wholeheartedly follow Him, even for a few generations on end. But after a while, they lapse into forgetfulness, arrogance, disdain of God. God bears with them many times. He rescues them many times according to his promise. But they fail to live up to their promise. And the people of Nehemiah 9 gather to repent for this. Yes, their city walls are standing. The building is complete. But they are not fully free. As it says in the final verses of this prayer, we are slaves this day. The rich yield of the land goes to foreign pagan kings, probably through taxes. They have control over them and over their bodies. It seems like a somber conclusion. But there's something else that emerges in this long prayer. It's what one commentator calls a cycle of deliverance. And I've alluded to it already. No matter how many times the people fail and fall, God rescues them again. It is a cycle because it happens in the same way again and again. But it is a cycle of deliverance because it is God's faithfulness that brings them out of that and puts them back where they belong, which is in their own land that he had promised them, and near to his heart. And you'd think after one or two goes through that cycle, the lesson might be learned, but no, after a while, enjoying God's pleasures, well, that changes to being a bit too comfy, it changes into comfy idolatry, and the cycle continues. And where we find the Israelites now is at a low point of that cycle. They find themselves slaves again. The prayer makes it very clear that they don't blame God for that situation. They say, you have been righteous in all that comes upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. But neither do they give up hope completely. On the contrary, they raise a request to God. They ask that God would deliver them once more. And I'm going a bit off script here, which I always find a bit tricky. Though in my ESV at least, or Jean-Luc's ESV which I borrowed, it has a neat little subheading that says the people of Israel confess their sin above the chapter. They do. They, they gather for that, they have their 
sackcloth and ashes. They confess that they have acted wickedly where God has acted faithfully. But where, when we look over the prayer as a whole, which of those things get more emphasis? It's God's faithfulness. Which they remind themselves and one another of, and which they recount before God. At some point, when we fall into sin, we may find ourselves wishing to repent for that, repenting for that. And we may feel so discouraged about ourselves that we linger in it. The people of Israel end their prayer and their confession of sin, though with a petition to God to deliver them again. I think they are only able to do so precisely because they know and have seen and have remembered God's faithfulness from earlier days. And as I was walking to this place earlier this morning, I thought that actually presents a challenge to my prayers. I woke up this morning and prayed for this occasion, for this service. I prayed that it would go well, as I pray most of the days that what I'm going to do is going well, going to go well. Um, that I might be faithful in what I do. And it's good to ask for those things and ask for those things daily. But as I pray for those things, what I need to do is remind myself also of all the times when God has actually granted that. It gives me a confidence that he will do it again. It might even inform or challenge the way we pray as a church. For example, when there is hardship among us or illness. Even in the past few months, I think we've had a few stories of, of healing. So if in the coming few months there is an affliction among us, we don't start praying for that as if it is something completely new. We pray knowing that God has acted on it and delivered us before. Now, on the flip side of that, that does not mean we can hold God or bound, bind God to that. God is not bound to anything. And neither can we claim it for ourselves. But there is a confidence and an assurance that God will do Again, what he has done already. So how does this story go on? Well, God remains faithful. The cycle of deliverance continues in the further Old Testament stories. God saves, the people rejoice, the people reject. God rescues. Israel's history is not just interesting information recorded in the first half and more of our Bibles. 
the Old Testament carries a spirituality all its own. And it is great and gritty source material about the God whom we serve. His forbearing faithfulness with people who had very little to stand on, but whom he redeems and calls back to himself again and again. We know this cycle of deliverance culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. And glory to God, this deliverance then expands from the Israelites through the church of Christ to all the world. It's no small thing that as non-Israelites we get to be included in the people of God. That is a market change that takes place in the New Testament. And it is something that we ought to thank God for. It extended to the people of every age, every place in time, every geographical location. Even to the Dutch, which is pretty amazing. And from what I'm seeing and hearing, and since you're here today, many of us have come to hear that message and believe it. And if this is new to you, well, then can I encourage you to get familiar with it, with the gospel. Read or hear it and throw your life upon it. Because this cycle of deliverance is heading toward a climax. When Jesus comes back. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still the power of salvation for all who believe. Romans 1. And deliverance is ready and waiting. But the cycle will eventually close. There will be a moment when Jesus Christ returns. When all must give an account. And when God's forbearance, spanning centuries and millennia, and amazingly bountiful as it is, will know its end. The cycle of deliverance will close. And that means there is a task for the church. Of course, to eagerly expect and hope for Jesus' return and rise among the saints. But also to preach the gospel, live out the gospel, to those around us so that more may be delivered it says at the start of hebrews long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things god calls and he keeps calling for all to come he's been speaking to humankind in every generation and now finally by his son we must respond to what God speaks if we are to be saved. And when we do, then all of Israel's history, all of the church's history, is a testimony to us that God delivers. And it is an assurance to us that he will deliver us in the end. I brought up Hebrews just now, and earlier in this academic year, I um, got to speak about Hebrews as well. Uh, two of those chapters. So, I would like to close out this preach with a personal note. As I was preparing for today and read through this chapter, Nehemiah 9, a number of times, aside from the biblical references that I just 
mentioned and may have been exciting for some and very geeky to some others of you, I was reminded of some other things as well. I was reminded of that time when I was invited to preach about God's faithfulness and patience as a subject. That was in the fall of 2020 when there was a studio set up in the hub and we gathered on Zoom. We had to do that for a while. Some of us are still joining via Zoom. Twice I spoke to you from my parents' house back in the Netherlands. Once about Exodus, um, and once about the parable of the workers in the vineyard, another lesson in God's generosity. It wasn't always easy these past three years. It went well study-wise, even during the time it was all online. I count myself blessed for that. There have been a few moments I despaired, and I felt for some of my friends who were struggling with their studies. I felt for this church community too. The loss some of you may have had in your families, and the loss we've had in the church in time. But I look over the past years and think, it's been good. God has been good to me. The challenge is, as I look back, not to be too proud. I got my 120 study credits now, but who gets the glory for that? It's easy to think, I have done well, I have. I wrote those essays, I preached those sermons, I sang those songs. I got the girl in the end. <laughs> and sure, I can point to some of that and say, I did that. God helped me, but I put in the work and the effort. But it's easy, way too easy, to think I did it all in my own strength. It's not easy to recognize that I didn't. It actually wasn't all tenacity and studiousness from me. I woke up each day, I got out of bed, I did the work, but every step of the way, God was there. He was there with me, went there before me, supported me from behind, and strengthened me from within. God was undeniably present, and that's both a comfort and a challenge. We often speak about it in terms of comfort. It's in the Psalms that way too. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in times of trouble. Thanks be to God that he is. But if God is present with me everywhere and every time, then he will not be denied his presence in everything I do. Even if I tend to overlook it, or want to overlook it, because I think, oh, this is... My good work. Who am I kidding? God was there. So, look at me doing all this research. Here I am singing about the glories of God. Here I am speaking about the Bible, letting the words flow. I'm doing pretty well. No or yes, but don't forget. I opened my eyes and I got out of bed. But God woke me up in good health. It's not my alarm clock that did that. God did. I read the book. I did the research. But God helps me to understand. There was a song this week during uh, Deeper, our weekly Wednesday worship gathering at LST. I hadn't heard it before. Um, but it was a gospel song called I Got a Reason. Um, Hannah Kirk um, led us in it. Jess was also there uh, singing it with us and leading us. And some of its lyrics go like this. Woke me up this morning, 
gave me a testimony. I've got a reason and so many more. Done so much for me, gave me the victory. I got a reason to praise the Lord. And that's the amazing thing to me as I look back over the past three years. God has done so much for me. Blessing me with friends and a church family. Taking me through this degree. And in the end, he gave me the victory of acquiring it. But he is the God who, gives, who himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Life and breath and everything. Then there's not much that I can say is all mine and all my achievement. And on that note, I, I did not get the girl. It was Annemiek's amazing choice to be with me in this time. And put up with me. And in all this time, she was and will be a gift to cherish. And I've got my parents to thank too. Welcoming me back every time COVID or Christmas sent me home. Being supportive of me, quitting my job and going down this theology trail. And also telling me occasionally, hey, it doesn't always have to be a first. Okay? <laughs> That's fine. Likewise, I will cherish the memories of being here. And Aaron, you can keep me on not being allowed to speak in a few weeks. <laughs> because I'm talking for so long now. Surely the friendship will continue, but I am going to miss some of the fellowship. Christ first Watford. I've learned a lot here. And that's not just in terms of my skills. I'm going to be here for two more weeks, um, but this will be the last time, uh, as said, for a while that I get to speak to you in this way. And I get a bit more shy when it's coffee break. So I want to say now, thank you, Christ first for everything. You have been an integral part of my journey of studying in the UK. I do hope to visit you again um, multiple times soon. But again, don't congratulate yourselves too much. Keep in mind that all the good that Christ first brings to the community, to the LST students that come here, to the refugees and to everyone else, is because of God's presence here. Here in this church and here in every one of us. So keep that at the center. Reach into it, reach out from it to others, and live it inside out. Or as... Gareth might put it, and occasionally get in the bin. <laughs> so, thanks again. And from Psalm 106, the final verse. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.